buckle up because we got a ride. So open up your guys' Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to jump right into it because I want you guys to be able to get home for dinner. Oh, man. I was like, Lord, you know what I got? You know what's going on? I was like, all right. Uh, okay. That's funny. I love Tyler just prefacing the whole church. Hey, you know Danny's teaching today, so we got to get moving. Yeah, that's good. Thanks, Tyler. All right, Romans 11. Um, all right. So I love starting off with a, with a question. Um, have you guys ever felt like just kind of day to day uh, that maybe you've been made for more than what you're living for now? You ever feel like, you know, like life's not bad, but, you know, you just feel like there's something more. There just has to be something more. Like you maybe had a vision for your life, and you woke up one day, and it just wasn't what you thought it was, right? The busyness of life, the, the craziness of family, or just day-to-day -day routines. You're like, man, this doesn't seem like it's it. It feels like there's something missing. Well, Christmas is coming up, and I love Christmas. Who loves Christmas? I'm just trying to get you guys involved. That's not even in my notes. Hey, hey here we go. So Christmas. I love Christmas, and uh, I love it a lot. My youngest son, his birthday is in November, and so we don't start bringing any Christmas in until after his birthday because it's kind of hard to compete with the birth of Jesus, right? So we, we make sure we wait until after his birthday to get down with Christmas. And so I'm looking forward to that, and... Um, as I was preparing uh, this message and thinking about, man, is there, there's got to be more. It reminded me of, of Christmas mornings where either maybe you or a child or a spouse is opening up a Christmas gift. And, and it's the gift you've given them. So you're excited, okay? And you're like, you're looking, you're waiting, you're anticipating like, all right, this is the gift. Like you put your heart and soul into this gift. You've dropped some Benjamins into this gift or whatever that is. And you're waiting for them to open it. And they open up the gift. They take it out. They're going, they're going, they take it out, they look at it, they set it aside, and they keep going to see if there's more. And I'm like, no, 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 that's the gift, pick it back up, like, that's, that's all I got, you know, like, that's all we got, like, and then, but for something inside, a lot of children, is they, they keep digging for more, like, oh, there's got to be more, right, and so, this morning, as we read through the, this passage in Romans, we're going to see how, that there is more for the people of God, and Paul's going to give us hope through the message that he has for his Israelite listeners, kind of expounding on the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. And so we're going to see Paul take us through a history lesson um, of, of Israel's past to point to Israel's future and to highlight God's faithfulness to his remnant people of Israel that will hopefully give us hope as his remnant people in the world today. And so we'll see how Israel's story might, might possibly reveal where we have slipped into some of the pitfalls that Israel slipped into. Um, and we'll see what God's desire is for us as we hopefully come out. And so we'll see that for many of us, there is more to life than what we're living. And we're being invited into that today. You guys ready for that? Yeah, all right, cool. So look down with me, Romans 11, 1 through 6. says this, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment where we get to look to your word and we get to see what you would have for us this morning. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would illuminate our minds to the understanding and truth of your word, and that you would change us from the inside out, that Christ would be exalted and your bride would be built up in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Real quick, Romans 11, so I just want to give us a little bit of background um, because we're trying to jumping into a crazy chapter in Romans. And so if you guys remember, and earlier on in Romans, right, when the book opens up, it says that God has revealed himself to the world. So man is without excuse. He has revealed himself in creation, and he has revealed himself within each one of his image bearers inside. We have this understanding of God, and we've rejected him. Right? And then it says that he revealed himself specially to the people of Israel. That he came himself, gave them their presence, gave them the law, but them too fell short and eventually rejected the God who had called them out to be his people. Every single one of them fell short of God's, um, God's expectations in the law for the Jew and God's expectations that he has revealed himself to the world. And so the book of Romans says that all people fall short of the glory of God, right? Whether you are a, uh, a, a Jew or a Gentile, all are under sin, and God shows no partiality or favoritism. And so people have all rebelled. We've all stand before God guilty, Right, and so that's kind of where, like, what happens in Romans, and every, you know, whoever's reading this book must be like, wait, is there any hope? But then it starts to give us hope, and the Bible says that, that, that God in his love for his people, and with the grace that he desired to display, that while we were sinners, God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live that perfect life that we couldn't live, and then die in our place on the cross, taking the consequence for our sin upon himself. Because God in his love wanted to display his grace and his glory throughout the world. The Bible says that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he actually rose from the grave. And that any man or woman who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Right? This is the gospel. This is what we've been seeing in Romans. This is the beautiful picture of Romans. Romans is, is, is expounding for us the good news. And, and Paul goes on to say that it's by faith alone. Right? It's not by our obedience to the law because no one can actually do it perfectly. It's by faith in Christ. Right? And then we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to obey the law. That actually gives us a desire to do the things that God has called us to do. Right? And so this is what Paul has been teaching, that anyone now, Jew or Gentile, has access into the kingdom of God, adopted into the family of God. And so Paul, knowing his audience in Rome, is mixed Jew and Gentile. Right? He, he's, he's, he's expounding on all this stuff. And then in Romans 9 through 10, pretty much, he said that Israel has rejected God. It's, he, it's rejected um, the Messiah. Therefore, God has rejected Israel for a time, but has kept for himself a remnant within Israel, an Israel within Israel. Right? And so because it seems like this redemption in this new covenant has been given specially to the Gentiles, Jews are freaking out. Like, wait, what about us? Like, what about our history with God? Like, is that all a race? Like, and so knowing that some of his listeners would be freaking out, Paul wants to address this question. So look down with me. Verse 1 again. It says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? 
may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he's just coming right at that question that a lot of Jews would be thinking. And so our first point is this. God is committed to Israel. Paul's wanting to relieve any anxiety that might be rising up in any Jewish believer saying, man, has God rejected Israel? May it never be. That little phrase, may it never be, is the strongest negative found in the Greek language. Right, if you guys uh, read the King James, any King James people in here? My OGs, little OGs, no, no King James people? All right, that's cool. Um, well, if you did, I mean, I, I think it's cool that these and the thous, they're hardcore. Um, but, you know, it says, God forbid... Right, God forbid. Has, has, has he rejected Israel? God forbid. So you know that feeling that when people say God has abandoned America? You know, people have been saying that kind of stuff. God's abandoned America. And some of you guys are like, how dare you? Like, no, you know. And like, you know, like God loves America and all these things. And I'm not saying he doesn't. But, you know, there's, there's emotion that's kind of there when you hear those kind of things. Some people say that, you know, America is no longer a Christian nation. Right? And some of our right-wing brothers and sisters, they got, you know, kind of, you know, nervous and anxious and like, no, 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 God bless America, right? And they go in their room and listen to God bless America over and over, like, no, like, this is it. And, um, you know, and so imagine how those people feel, okay? Those Americans who are hearing all this stuff. Okay, now times up by a thousand, and that's how the Jew would be feeling about now. And this time with Paul. Because right, this is the people of God. Like, they're literally called out, called by his name to show the world what God was like to be his people and his priests to the world. To carry the messianic bloodline through history that Christ would come through Israel and save the world. They're kind of a big deal. And so they're like, wait, what do you mean God has rejected Israel for a time? That makes no sense. They must have been freaking out. And so Paul is saying, though, though God has rejected Israel for a time, he is not done with Israel. Right, and so because of their, their rejection of, of the Messiah, right, God has, has rejected them for this time because of their inability to rest in the finished work of Jesus, of the Messiah, which has been prophesied for about like hundreds of years. So you think that Israel would get it like, hello, Israel. You know, have you seen the Bible project? Like it explains all of these things, right? And so um, they, they, they're at a loss and they're under, learning to, to see Christ as their Messiah, um, and for this time, Israel has been set aside, and so this is heavy. And Paul is saying that the nation might have turned back on their Messiah, but God has saved a remnant within Israel and has, no, has not rejected his people. So, of course, you know, Paul uses himself as a case study. Right, he's saying, man, let me just give you an example. I, too, am a, I'm an Israelite, right? Like, like, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Like, what are your descendants? Let me just pull up my Ancestry.com printout real quick and show you who I am. Like, I, I'm connected to Abraham, yeah, the big guy. And, uh, you know, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, right, which is like a highly honored, very prestigious tribe. So he's like, man, I'm a Jew. Like, I'm a Jewish Jew. I'm very Jewish. And he's like, and God has rescued me. Not only am I a Jew of a Jew, I am, I was, a, I was an enemy of the cross. Like, I, I, I have authorized the murder of Christians, and yet God in his love and his grace saved Paul. So he's saying, man, if, if God can save a Jew like me, he can save anyone from Israel. And so Romans chapter 9, Paul begins this whole part. So 9 through 11 is kind of like this little, like, bracket that's talking to Israel. And so we learned already in Romans 9 
Paul began by saying it was their special selection that the Israelites, to the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoptions as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. That God has not fully rejected Israel because God has made covenants with them and promises to them throughout history. All right, so a little history lesson, right? In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he's going to make Israel a great nation, that the whole world is going to be blessed through Israel. In Genesis 13, it says that Israel would dwell in their land forever, right? And it goes on, and, 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 we, and we see that Israel has a special place in God's redemptive narrative, like Israel, the called-out people of God, right? It was, to, it was Israel that he redeemed from Egypt, right? It was, it, was from, it was through Israel that he showed his redemptive power to free people from any kind of slavery. It was through Israel that he demonstrated his power by sending the plagues and rescuing his people. He gave Israel the law to show the heart of God for a people that would trust him, obey him, and worship him. It was to Israel that he gave the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system that all pointed forward to Jesus as our high priest and his sacrifice for our sins. And that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the new temple that is us. It was through Israel that we saw all the types of Christ's come. Right? We see Moses who pointed forward to Jesus. Moses, the mediator and the rescuer. Joseph, the one who would suffer so that the people of God would be saved. David, the king who would rule with the heart after God. All of these point forward to, our coming, to their coming Savior, Messiah, Jesus, and it would all be fulfilled in him. Right? It was this nation, Israel, that God chose to demonstrate his love, power, and grace through his redemptive plan through Israel. And here's the kicker. The nation of Israel was the, was the nation that he chose our Savior, Jesus, to come from. Right? Jesus was Jewish. Fun fact, if you didn't know, and God planned that Jesus would be raised in and perform his ministry through the nation of Israel. And then use Israel as a springboard into where the mission of God would go throughout the world, saving people from all nations. This was God's intentions from the beginning, and it would all be fulfilled in Jesus. Not only was Jesus Jewish, but all the disciples, all the apostles, the first church, right, and they turned the world upside down. So that, so that the, the message of the gospel would go forward, that every single person in this room could trace back their salvation to God's plan for Israel. God is not done. 1 Samuel 12.22 says, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord is has been pleased to make you a people for himself. In Psalms 105, he says, he remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And even through Israel's rebellion, God says, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. And so because God has been faithful to Israel and will continue to be faithful to Israel, we can bank that he will be faithful to us, his people today. Because God is immutable, he is unchanging, and he is faithful yesterday, today, and forever. And God is saying that he has a remnant people within Israel that he is saving and redeeming to himself today. And that there will one day be this mass revival in Israel where all of Israel will be saved. Okay, that's a tough one. And Mike gets to teach that in a couple weeks, so that's not me. Um, and so... 
we're going to focus right now is that God has this remnant. And so the second point is God is committed to his remnant. Look down with me, um, verses 2 through 5 or up for those of you um, who uh, need it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. All right. Um, any of you guys ever been a part of a club, like a club in school, right? School clubs, yes. Um, anybody part of the chess club? Who's, who's my chess club people? Oh, we got one. Awesome person. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's awesome. I just wanted to see who the smart people were in our church, so that's cool. We got one. Good job. Um, you know, I was going to say, like, let's start a chess club, but <laughs> we got one. All right, I like it. No, chess club, that's awesome. I wasn't a big club guy uh, growing up. I think I was part of one club in the fifth grade. It was the sign language club. Um, why did I join? I don't know. But I do remember that I learned how to clap in sign language, so that was really cool. Uh, and so if, one thing I've always wanted to do was learn how to share the gospel in sign language. So if you know sign language, I would love to learn that. We all love to be a part of something, right? A part of a group, uh, a part of, of an elite, you know, people, right? I think um, some people feel like because they use androids, like they're part of this, like, elite crew, they're not. They're just misinformed. Um, no, I'm just messing. And, uh, you know, and, and so, but we see this desire, right, to be a part of the, an elite group, and it's just part of life, right? And so, you know, it's fun to be a part of a sports team because we're part of this group, you know, a sports club, uh, maybe student government in your school. Uh, maybe you're part of the cool kids club. Like some of you guys in school were, like, actually popular, right? I know there's a few of you out there, and uh, you were in the popular kids club. You're like, oh, we're so cool. Um, you know, and, and so we like that feeling, for some of us, it was where we went to college, our alumni, right? We got the stickers and the license plate and the shirts, right? Um, it could be the NFL team that you're a part of, right? Go Raiders, let's go, baby. Um, whatever that is, right? It could be the branch of military um, that you're a part of. You know, it's your, your Army, family, Air Force, you know, all, whatever that is. Or maybe you're like an elite within that, like you're a pilot. You're part of the pilot club or the, the Navy SEAL club or the Rangers or whatever that is. And somewhere in our lives, most of us have been a part of some kind of group that was set apart for a specific purpose, and here Paul is encouraging the Jewish Christians that God has set apart for himself an elite, God-chosen by his grace group in Israel to carry his mission and his message forward, which is encouraging. And so we see that Paul uses the story of Elijah. Okay, so there's a time in Israel's history where things weren't going good. Elijah was a prophet. There was King Ahab um, and his wife Jezebel, not good people. And, uh, and they pretty much, her and her priest Jezebel, led most of Israel to go worship Baal which was a god of the world, like an idol, false god of the world, okay? And so what happened was they're after Elijah's life because he's a prophet of God. So like, we're going to kill this guy. Well, this story is, 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 is super encouraging because before this, uh, Elijah's on a mountain, Mount Carmel, and he's battling with the priests of Baal. So one, he's calling down fire from heaven, pretty epic, defeats like 
the God of the um, Baal, like in this battle between God and Baal, like just defeats him. And then he goes like 300 Sparta on the priest. Like it is not a PG part of the Bible. And you're like, dude, Elijah's the man. Like he literally goes hand-to-hand combat anyways. Not going to get into that. But it's like, it's amazing. You're like, dude, Elijah's the man. And then all of a sudden, this woman, Jezebel's like, we want to kill Elijah. And he runs off into a cave and he's crying to the Lord. Like, Lord, am I the only one? And I'm like, wait, what, dude? You were just like taking out all those priests. And it didn't make sense to me. But it's, it's cool because I see it. It's kind of like we experience this all the time. So it's, it's encouraging. It's like, man, we're on the top of the mountain. We're like battling the enemy. We're walking in the victory. And then we get like one little discouragement over here. And we're running into our rooms, closing the door, crying like, Lord, am I the only one? So I feel like this has been placed here for us to encourage us that even great prophets have those moments. And so we can learn from them. And it's okay. Um, And so he's calling out to God in desperation. He's saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They're seeking my life. But I love it. It says that the divine response, God's response is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Right? He's thinking he's the only one left. Right? I know some of us have probably thought that. We got the, the, the holidays coming up. Right? We got Thanksgiving and Christmas, where you're going to be going to family gatherings. Those are fun for some people, not so fun for others. And, uh, and so, and, and you think sometimes, I'm, I'm assuming it's like, oh man, like Lord, like am I the only one in my family that is like sane? Am I the only one, Lord, that loves you? Like they all claim to be Christians, but they're crazy. You know, it's like whatever that looks like. You know, and I feel like it's Elijah's in that moment, and we may have felt this way. But God has encouraged him and said, I have 7,000 other people who have not bowed the knee. 7,000 who have been faithful to me. And so he's encouraging the, the Christians, the Jews, in the same way that at that time that God has set this remnant apart and that he and them are a part of it. And the cool thing is, is that, man, God doesn't only have a remnant people within Israel. He has that. But since Christ came, he has been setting apart a remnant people all over the world. Right? He's had his people through pandemics, through war- world wars, economic collapses, the rise and fall of nations. God has always kept for himself a people. Right? And that remnant within Israel today is just part of the greater remnant that God has all over the world. God has always had his remnant people to carry his mission and his message forward. And so my question for us today and what I feel like God is challenging us today with is this. Are we a part of that remnant? Are we a part of that remnant? Are we among those that God has kept for himself in today's battle against the kingdom of darkness? So when I looked at this passage, I wanted to see what differentiated God's people um, who, who bowed the knee to those who didn't. Right? What differentiated the remnant from the rest of Israel who had went away? Right? And God said this, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's God's description of the remnant people. The evidence in the lives of the remnant people was that they hadn't bowed the knee to the pagan gods of the world. That the mark of a true remnant believer is that they haven't bowed the knee to anyone but God. And you see Baal, okay, the, the, the one that we're talking about, he was the god of rain, crops, prosperity, and fertility. Okay, and so what were the crops for people in the first and second century? What do you guys think? You know, yes, you can just say it to me or in your head, that's fine. Um, Baal was the god of rain. He was the god of crops, the god of prosperity and fertility. 
Um, and so we see that it was food, income, it was the economy, right? It was security, right? And in some ways, it was their wealth, right? And so, so rain brought the crops. So this is where they were finding their dependence and their worship. And so we see that Israel had left their dependency and trust in God in the worship of him. Right, to depend and to trust in the ways of the world and the security of the world instead of God. To live according to the narrative of the world and put their trust in the gods of the surrounding nations. The gods of security and economic success. Right, the gods of materialism. And because Baal was tied to fertility, right, it led to the, the worship to Baal led to, to sexual promiscuity and a lot of other sexual activity. Right, and so here we go. We got, you know, worldly success, materialism, sexual promiscuity, all these things. And, and, and when I was reading this, I'm like, wow, that sounds a lot like our world today. You see, there are narratives out in the world that are, are trying to lure your heart to worship other things than God, to give your time, attention, trust, and affection to those things. And I feel like God is asking us today to check our hearts and see if there's anything that we have bowed the knee to other than God. To ask the questions like, what controls us? Or what drives us day to day, week to week? Right? What has our allegiance? What do we worship? Is it our career? Maybe it's our savings account. Our image? Right? How, how, how we look to other people, how, how the world perceives us. Maybe it's an activity or a thing that you're consumed with doing that you spend, you know, all of your free time thinking about and doing, and you just, you're consumed with that one thing. Man, this, this week of study, it really wrecked me because I had to check my heart and see, man, is there anything that I look to, anything that I depend on and give my affection to more than God? And, 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 this, and so I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, like, soul-searching because, man, you know, I've heard that our idol, I mean, that our, that our heart is an idol factory. That our heart is an idol factory. That we're really quick to turn the gifts of God into the idols that we worship instead of him. And there are things in my life that I can get more excited than God at times. Right? And maybe some of us, you know, we can be more excited about a, a trip to Target than a trip to church. Is that, that too much? That's too real? I'm sorry. Right? Or maybe, maybe it's, you know, seeing the new Marvel movie, you know, instead of going to Ohana Groups. Busted, right? Or, or maybe it's checking where your Amazon package is and, like, where is my Amazon package instead of, like, spending time in the Word, right? Like, this is things like I, I, we battle with these things, right? And, um, and these are just little things, right? But there are little things and big things in our world that try to convince you to give your time and attention and love to. And if we are honest, we would admit that sometimes we give things in our life worship other than God. You see, the world tells you that your value and your worth come from what career you have, how much money you make, how many things you have, where you shop, how good you look, the kind of house that you live in, the kind of car you drive, the kind of five-year plan, financial investing thing you've got set up. And what happens is we fall for the narrative of the world and we spend our lives working towards these things, idolizing those things in the pursuit of those things. And so many times they distract us from God's calling in our lives. You see, these things aren't bad in themselves, 
right? But we just, we want to be good stewards of these things. They're not bad in themselves. God has given them to us that we would steward them well. But when they become the things that we worship, the things that we live for, and the things that we find our identity in, they become lethal. If the enemy can keep us distracted in building our own kingdoms, he doesn't have to worry about us building God's kingdom. We can be so busy remodeling our houses in order to keep up with our neighbors and forget to seek God that he would remodel our hearts that we could actually reach our neighbors with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. Right, we look at our unsaved co-workers and neighbors and how they live and what they're investing in and what they focus on and subconsciously or consciously we're comparing our lives to them and we strive to be like the world instead of the set-apart people of God that we have been called out to be. We let worldly value be more important than spiritual value and eternal value. We let the mission of success trump our mission to make disciples of Jesus and bring him glory in every area of our life. We end up worshiping the same things the world worships, the same things that our unsaved friends worship, the things that our Instagram and Facebook algorithms tell us to worship, right? Success, power, beauty, security, possessions, the idols of today. 1 John 2, 16 says that for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these are not from the Father, but they are from the world. You see, we were created to worship, and, 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 and the longing that we have can only be satisfied in worshiping the living and one true God. And we just, we tend to worship the things that we, that give us purpose. We tend to worship the things that give us our identity, that give us security. We worship those things. So if we're finding that in God, then it should be natural to worship him. But if we're not, then where are we finding those things? What this has me asking is, man, why would Israel turn from God and turn to the world and its idols and its false sense of security? Right? Why would it turn from God? Like this is your God. He saved you. And I'm assuming after a while, the rituals and the sacrifices just became routine. And they've been doing the same thing over and over, year after year, and slowly they started letting the influence of the world into their lives. Right? And after a while, living for God just turned into religious activity instead of intimacy with God. And their relationship and intimacy dwindled. I'm assuming they were just, at some point in time, they were just going through the motions and they spent more time looking around and looking over the fence than looking up at the God who, who saved them, who's renamed them and saved them and called them to be set apart in this world. I'm sure God must have been like, I've, I've, I've saved you. Like, don't you remember that? I redeemed you from slavery. I redeemed you from that. And you're just running towards a different slave master. And at some point in time, they forget. They forget the love of their God. They forget to enter into his presence. They might have been walking around the temple every day in the temple courts talking to all the other people, but they never actually entered into his presence. They didn't have that relationship. They weren't praying. They weren't talking to God. They stopped spending time with him. They'll show up to the temple, but they're not actually spending time with their God. They're not spending time hearing his word. Offering praise and petition. And it stopped to be a relationship and became routine. You see, this is how the people of God were. And it's easy to turn it into that. And then the world's influence is so strong. Man, if we don't have a relationship with God, if it's not current, man, the world's working every day to get you to come and worship the things that they want you to worship. 
when Jesus came to Israel, it was kind of the same thing. When Jesus came, it said that the, the religious leaders' hearts were far from God, though they praised him with their lips. So it looked good on the outside, but their hearts were far. Jesus came, he said, he came to save and to seek and save the lost. Right, to, to, to save those who have been wrapped up in a world of lies and deception and the enemy's scandals. But I love it. Jesus came to tax collectors. Right? What do we see with tax collectors? Right? They worshipped money. Right? They worshipped success. They worshipped fame. They worshipped kind of the, the, the prestige and the power that came with being a tax collector. Right? And I like it because it's, it, it tell, we, we learn about this story where Jesus came and he met this man named Zacchaeus. And that he stayed at Zacchaeus' house, who was a tax collector. And that when he stayed at his house, it said that Zacchaeus, after that experience with Jesus, he said he, gave, he repaid all of his debts, and then he gave half his money to the poor. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this home today. And some of us are thinking, oh, okay, cool. So you give your life to Jesus and you do good things. That's not what happened. Zacchaeus' life was wrapped up in money and fame, power, but when he got saved, when he, when he met Jesus, everything changed. It's not about that anymore. His whole life purpose changed. His direction changed. What he worshipped changed. He now worshipped Jesus. And so he wasn't living for his fame or his glory, but the glory of God. And so he turned his whole life upside down when he in interacted and met Jesus. And he was redeemed from that. Jesus came to drunks and gluttons, Right? We see these people wrapped up in pleasure from one party to the next, one high to the next, one bottle to the next bottle, not knowing that the only thing that will truly satisfy them, the only thing that could truly heal them from all of their pain was found in Christ. That the fulfillment that they thought they would find in this party scene or the highs and whatever that is would never actually satisfy and it could only be found in a relationship with God. Jesus brought them to himself. He came to the prostitutes and those bound up in sexual pursuits. It's interesting that Baal worship involved temple prostitution and sexual activity. Right? And God was coming to, to them to lead those wrapped up in, 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 in all of that stuff and, he, and lead them back into God's design to turn them from the empty wells of relationship after relationship, one night stand to one night stand, and to turn them, save them from that. And to show them the love that they truly desire, that they're truly searching for, is found in God, in God alone. He came to Pharisees. We see Pharisees, my man Nicodemus, you know, getting saved, right? And, and, and so what we see is this, is that, that there's these guys that thought they could work their way into heaven, doing enough good things, being moral on the outside, going to the temple, doing enough religious things. But Jesus was coming to free them from them being a slave to the religious appearance on the outside, but to cleanse them and renew them from the inside to give them a new heart so they can truly worship God and know who he is. Where were you when Jesus found you? What do you need to be reminded that he freed you from today? Are we so easily going back to a different, more deceptive type of slavery? Cool, he maybe saved you from a life of addiction, but are you now living for a life that's worshiping the things of this world in a different form? 
We can be so distracted with the way of the world. We forget who he is. We forget what he's done for us. We forget that he's freed us from sin and he's demonstrated his love and his mercy in our lives. That he's the Alpha and the Omega, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he came for you. He sought after you. He loved you in his grace to give you new life. And today he is calling us back to himself, to walk with him, to worship him. Don't worship the things of the world. God alone is worthy to be worshiped. And so I have to be real. I can struggle with these things. I do not come up on this stage thinking that I have somehow arrived, like, oh, you guys got to figure it out. I struggle these things. The hard part for me is I have to check my heart and go, am I turning anything in my life to something that I worship above God? Like, is there anything that I'm putting my security, my strength, my hope, my purpose in instead of looking to Jesus, instead of finding it in God? Am I looking to the world to show me how to live? Or am I looking to the God who has redeemed me and given me new life to show me how? See, there was a time where almost all of Israel and all the people of God had desired to be more like the world than what God had called them to be. So we need to be careful. We need to ask God today, is there any, any way that I'm trying to imitate the world more than imitate Christ? Is there anything else that I am bowing the knee to in my life other than you, Lord? Is there anything that, that steals my affection and my attention from you? Do you know what um, steals my attention and my affection a lot? This little guy right here, right? We all know this. It's like, oh, is he going to talk about uh, our phones? I hope not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right? Some people say, like, you know, I'm not addicted to my phone. Like, I'm good. Like, I don't have it that bad, right? Whatever. That's cool. Good for you. <laughs> Denial. See, I was, I was reading a book, and it was called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. That book messed me up. If you're okay with your relationship with your phone, don't read it. But if you want some change, it's a good, it's a good read. And in there it said that the average person checks their phone every 4.3 minutes, okay? That means you will be tempted to check your phone 10 to 15 times while this is going on. Right? I don't know where you guys are in that, and I hope some of you guys are going to try to prove me wrong. That's okay. That's totally okay. Uh, last week, I was in the back. I usually sit in the back, and I can kind of see everyone. And I, I literally saw multiple people texting and, you know, like looking at memes. And I'm like, all right, that's cool. Yeah, whatever. You know, I'm telling Mike. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Um, he's not here right now. Um, but if he listens to the sermon, you guys are busted. Uh, but I, I've been guilty of that. I've responded to a text, you know, like in church. Like I, I get that distraction. This is why I, I always encourage to bring a, you guys to bring a physical Bible to church. Like, I'm down for the Bible app. I love that the phone is on the, I mean, the Bible's on the phone. I love that. But when the word of God is being preached, and we're trying to pay attention, but we literally have our phone in our hand already. Like, it's already, like, like buzzing in your pocket, let alone, like, it's just in your hand. Notifications are just popping up, and you're like, and you're trying to stay focused? I mean, that's, I mean, we're setting ourselves up. So I would always encourage you guys to get a physical Bible, bring it to church for that and that alone. I'll be honest, just so you can stay in the zone. Because our phones are like these little gateways to the things that we actually idolize. Right? Israel had to go to the temples of Baal, right? All we have to do, we can enter any, any temple we want through our little phone. We can enter any temple we want through this thing right here. It's crazy. Any temple we want. That's where we have all of our financial information. It's where we look at all other people's lives and lifestyles and idolize them. It's where we spend hours playing video games or on social media. It's where we buy things that we're really into. It's where we watch our sports. It's where we watch the things that we like. It's where we numb ourselves. 
right? It's where we turn to sinful activities that we know break the heart of God, but we do it when no one's looking, when no one else is around. See, where Baal worship can live on is when people run to their little screen temples and prostitute themselves to images online. Shows that we stream that provoke us in the same way. We are in a time where the sin, porneia, is running rampant in the church. Watching porn has become so normalized in our culture, we need to guard our hearts and ask God to help us overcome that if we're in that battle right now. We don't wink at it. We don't say we're going to try harder. We get accountable. We seek the Lord. And we get brothers and sisters of God around us to overcome that kind of temptation. I believe that this particular issue is keeping a lot of people from living out their true identity as a remnant people of God today. Our phones can be where we just constantly distract ourselves from eternal things. Constantly distract ourselves. And, and so guess what happens is, is if uh, a personal revival, right, what we're hoping for today is only going to be found in a restored and renewed relationship with God. The first thing that's going to keep me from my communion with God is probably my phone. And so a lot of times our phones, they keep us from actually communing with God. Or they keep us from communing face-to-face -face with other people where we can be used by God. Or they can be used to encourage us. There are many things that vie for our attention and our worship in this world. And for those who call themselves the people of God today, God in his grace is calling us, calling me to check my heart and see what I'm bowing my knee to. And some of you guys are like, man, is Danny saying that I can't shop at Target or on Amazon or I can't have a savings account or have an iPhone? That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm hoping to do those things. Um, but, but this is the thing is this, is that we have the tendency to let those things grab our heart's affection more than our relationship with God. Or we can steward them well. These things can be gifts that we steward well for the glory of God, that we could leverage for the, for the building of his kingdom in our homes, in our community, and around the world. But the question is, are we doing that? We can use them in God's way or we can use them in the world's way. The people of God in Israel, you know, in Israel bowed their knee to Baal and they used their lives and possessions for the world's way and worshiped the world's gods. And so we have an opportunity to reframe that and use everything we are and everything we have for his glory. All right, our last point is God is committed to his grace and his glory. Verse 5, it says, In the same way, then, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. See, the Jews either worship the idols of the world or they tried to earn their own good standing before God through works, and none of it worked. And so Paul is addressing that as well. They wanted their good works to get them a part of the remnant kids club, but that's not going to happen. And you see, the reason why we need to understand it's by grace and grace alone is because the moment we take any kind of credit for our salvation, and start to, we start to put self in the, back in the place where only God should be. We start to look at ourselves as our Savior because look how much we did, look how much we can do. Right? And we try to do these religious things and to, to, to earn our place before God, but they will ultimately kill our spirituality. And so we need to turn from those things and realize that we know we can't do it. That's why God did it. We need his grace. And so every day I'm like, Lord, I'm so unworthy, but because of your grace, I need you. 
There's no proud, like, look at me. There's no, there's no swagger in the kingdom of God. We did not do anything to be here. God did it in his grace for his glory. And so we need to, and so Paul's reminding them it's by grace. If it's by anything else, it's no longer grace. In the book of Ephesians, I want you guys to read this later. We're going to run through some verses. Uh, we don't have time for that right now. But in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, I want you guys to go check that out. Because in that passage, we see Paul confront the spiritual warfare in the world that we've been saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. That we were dead in our sin, but Jesus made us alive. So what can a dead man do? Nothing. It's all Jesus. And then it says that it's by grace through faith we've been saved, not of works. It's not of ourselves, but a gift of God. So we can't boast. Right? This is what Paul is saying, that it's by grace. We are living in dark days in the West and here in, the, in America. They're saying it's a post-Christian world, that Christianity has faded and we are walking into a new world that is after Christianity. And more time than ever in our generation do we need a revival amongst the remnant people of God. Amen? And so what we see in, in, in revival history um, is that God has been doing this over time. We see a couple hundred years ago in the 18th century, Right, that there was a, a time where the church thought it was time to close their doors. Right, about the, the, the middle of the 18th century, it's that America was trending into a post-Christian society. Predictions were, making, were being made that, that, that the church was going to have to close its doors because of the enlightenment and the rise of, of secularism and all these things. Right, but it's in that moment when the world said, man, Christianity is dying. It was in that very moment that, that when people thought that it was over, God showed up in the most incredible ways through remnant people that he had kept from bowing the knee to the world. He did it through an unusual people. Right, so if you feel unusual, if you kind of feel out of place in this world, like you don't fit in, see, these are the kind of people that God uses in renewals and revivals. And so God comes in at this moment of crisis and globalization and the downfall of Christianity. And he comes in at this moment where it's so bad for the church and he shows up. God used ordinary people on fire for Jesus. A remnant that God had kept for himself and he sent them into the world. See, we have this tendency as a people of God, you know, century after century, to grow lukewarm and cold. And then God pours out his spirit and a rush of fresh wind and fresh fire comes through. And we're in that time. And it seems right now that the tide has gone back and we're waiting for this outpouring. And now is the time of preparation. Just as in the 18th century, God used guys like George Whitfield and John Wesley to bring the light of the gospel when most people thought darkness had overtaken at the same time, people were being raised up in Ireland and the UK. He raised up a man named Jonathan Edwards in America where he looked out at the young adults of America. And because of the economic situation, the young adults, they were delaying adulthood at that time. They weren't getting married until their 30s. They started sleeping around. People started self-harming. And people said that the youth are gone. We can't reach young adults again. But exactly at that moment when people had given up, God came with a mighty move that pushed the church forward, that pushed the mission and the message of Christ around the world. This move is called the Great Awakening, one of the greatest revivals and outpourings of the Spirit the world has ever seen. And what if this, right now, in this moment, God wants to move and he wants to raise our expectations where we need to lay our lives and hearts before God and ask him, cleanse us, help us to see what we need to to turn from and surrender to you. 
right? Every renewal and awakening in history, right, goes back to a person somewhere in an experience with God where they see the gap between them and what God has called them to is too big. And so they throw themselves back upon God. They throw themselves on his mercy and on his grace, and they plead for his holy fire. If you felt like there's something more, this is it. God desires that each one of us would have a personal revival, a renewed zeal for the name of Jesus. God is inviting you and me in his mission to reconcile the world back to himself, to free people from sin, idolatry, and follow Jesus into this abundant life. When the world sees the purified, set-apart people of God not being enslaved to the idols of the world, the current bales of today, but living unabashedly and unashamedly for the one true God, and they see Christ's character in us, and they hear the message of God through us, they will not be able to deny God's power in our lives. And so for many of us, the truth today is this. There has to be more to life, and there is, and the more is found in living our lives in an all-out, unabashed, all-in, all-encompassing, sold-out-on-fire life for Jesus. This doesn't mean we're not going to fall on our faces, mess up, make mistakes. Like, that's where the grace of God sustains us. That's why it says it's by grace alone. Right? It's, it's, it's that we've just changed directions completely. And our good and faithful shepherd, he's going to lead us all the way there. And he's going to pick us up when we fall. And he's going to grab us by the hand and say, continue to follow me. This is God's grace in action. And so today we need to ask ourselves, have we tried to live without his presence? Have we tried to live without him? Let us pray that he would show us in our lives where we need to surrender, where we have bowed the knee that we would turn to him, that he would help us, that he would purify us and prepare us for the works that he wants to do in our lives and that in response to the grace of the gospel, we would give our full allegiance to Jesus and follow him into the kingdom of God. And so if you're here today, it is God either reminding you of your calling as a remnant or inviting you into the remnant. God is on the move in this world. Are we in? Are we in? My heart is that we are and that God would purify and prepare his people here.